This morning, like FH said a moment ago, if you're visiting with us, uh, we just want to extend a warm welcome to you, and we would like to invite you to take out one of those cards that you see in front of you and fill that out, and you can give that to me in the back after the service this morning, or you can place that in the two little black boxes there in the back of the auditorium. That's just so we can get to know you, uh, and you can get to know us, and we can express our appreciation for you being here with us this morning. Several of you have probably heard of the nonprofit organization called the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Uh, the Make-A-Wish Foundation, they uh, approach children with uh, critical illnesses and ask them, if you had one wish, if you had one wish, what would it be? And they seek to fulfill that wish by various means. I was reading a story the other day about a little girl that was from Tennessee uh, that had a uh, critical disease. Uh, and she wanted, more than any, anything, to meet a mermaid. And so uh, the Make-A-Wish Foundation obliged, obliged that wish. Her family went to the beach uh, one week, and unbeknownst to her, as they're walking along the beach, uh, lo and behold, there are two uh, adult females in mermaid costumes <laughs> uh, there on the beach uh, for the little girl to take pictures with and to see. I want to ask you this morning, what if that was you? What if you knew that your time on earth was approaching near, um, that you were about to go the way of all the earth, as the Bible says? What would your dying wish be? Better yet, another question, a better question, I think, what would your dying prayer be? I've seen many people who know that their time on earth is coming to an end, and you can see people in those moments, you can see their prayer lives become much more intense. Uh, if, if, if this was you, what would you be praying for if you knew your time on earth was quickly coming to an end? What would you be praying for? Many people would pray for a prolonged life. God, help me to live just a little bit longer. Hezekiah did. Many people would pray for forgiveness for past sins and regrets. Many people would pray for their immediate family and their spouse and, and, and their relatives. In John the 17th chapter, and that's where we're going to be this morning, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, He knows that His time on earth is quickly drawing near. He knows that He's about to die and He knows that his fate, the fate that he's about to suffer, is going to be much worse than mere physical death. As Brother Jeff talked about for us a moment ago, uh, I can't even begin to imagine or to fathom the weight on Jesus' shoulders during this time, knowing what he's about to endure, knowing what he's about to experience, the weight of God's holy wrath being bored down upon him for every sinner. And Jesus, in John 17, he prays. And the prayer that we see in the 17th chapter of John, it's intense. It's real. It's raw. However, his prayer, it's different than what we would naturally expect and what many of us would naturally pray for. He doesn't pray for a prolonged life. He doesn't pray for 
sins or regrets. He was sinless. He doesn't pray for his immediate family. As Jesus is about to die and to bear the weight of God's wrath, he prays that all those who believe in him might be one. That all those who believe in him might be one. This morning is going to be our last message in our series on Christian unity, the good news of peace. Throughout this series, we've been looking at the foundation of Christian unity. We looked at Ephesians chapter 2, how Jesus in his flesh has torn down the dividing wall of hostility that existed between groups and classes and divisions, Jew and Gentile, and, and, and all different kinds of divisions that exist within the world, creating one new man creating a new humanity, a new way to be human, creating unity. We talked about the foundation of unity. We also, two weeks ago, looked at the aim of Christian unity, what unity looks like in action, and what we as Christians are striving for, are aiming for in our pursuit of Christian unity. We are aiming for unity in doctrine. We are aiming for unity in relationship. We're aiming for unity in participation. And we're aiming for unity in our attitude, our humble mindset that seeks grace and seeks forgiveness and seeks conflict resolution when it arises within the church body. And this morning... What we are going to see and how we're going to conclude this series is that we're going to see from Jesus' prayer the goal of Christian unity. What our unity is designed by God to produce in the minds and hearts of unbelievers, of those outside the church body. The goal of our Christian unity. This morning we're going to be specifically focusing on verses 20 through 23. Verses 20 through 23. We're going to be in the New American Standard Version this morning. And I encourage you to take out your Bible and follow along with me. I put the verses there on the screen for your convenience. But John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. John chapter 17, if you know from previous Bible study, it's, it's often referred to as the high priestly prayer. Uh, Jesus Uh, We see this explicitly in the book of Hebrews. Jesus is our great high priest who has ascended to the throne room of heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and makes intercession on behalf of the saints. Jesus intercedes for us. He lifts us up to the Father. If you're a Christian, if you are in Jesus Christ, Jesus himself continuously prays for you on your behalf to the Father. And what a thought that is, that my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ thinks about me consistently, continuously, and lifts me up to Almighty God. And Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, it serves as an example, I believe, of what this intercession looks like and how it's continued Look with me in verse 20 of John chapter 17. Verse 20. Jesus lifts up his voice to the Father and he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. 
Now, within the prayer, if you look previously, uh, Jesus prays for himself in the first five verses of the chapter. He prays to be glorified by the Father. He wants the Father who exists in glory to give him the same glory that the Father possesses. That the value and worth and beauty of God would be seen through him. And we see that glory. We see that value and worth and beauty if we continue reading in the gospel. And we see Jesus in his crucifixion. He also prays in the 17th chapter for his disciples. Those that he spent the majority of his time with, ministering to and, and training. So that they may be sent out to all corners of the world to preach the gospel after his departure. He prays that the Father would protect them. Protect them, Lord. In verse 11, he, he prays that they, the disciples, would be filled with the joy of God. The very joy of God that's welling up inside the eternal Godhead. Jesus prays that the disciples may know that and experience that for eternity in verse 13. He prays for his disciples that the Father would keep them from Satan. God, keep them. Don't let them fall away. Keep them on the straight and narrow that leads to you. In verse 15, and he prays that the Father would make them holy, would sanctify them by the truth, and that they would remain in it in verse 17. But in verse 20, Jesus shifts from his disciple to, quote, those who believe in me through their word, through the disciples' word, that they're going to preach and they're going to proclaim. Who's he talking about? He's talking about all Christians throughout time, throughout the 2,000-year span of church history, all of those who have bowed their knee to Jesus Christ and have submitted to Jesus Christ, that's who he's talking about. Christians, and that's you. And this shows us, I believe, how selfless our Lord is. He's about to die and experience something that is, is beyond the mind's ability to grasp. And what does he do? He prays for you. He thinks about you. He prays for you. The mind of Jesus, the mind of Christ, is a mind of humility that Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2. It's a mind that counts others as more significant than itself. And we see that very clearly in this chapter. Jesus is selfless. And he selflessly prays for you. What is his prayer? Look with me in verse 21. That they may all be one. Jesus here, he prays that we all may be one. He could have prayed for all kinds of things. There are many different things that Jesus could have prayed for. But he prays for all believers throughout Christian history to be one, to be unified together and live in that unity. Now, this oneness that we see here, it's, it's much more than just getting along at church. And when I say unity and when I teach on unity and when we open up these passages and talk about uh, Christian unity and all of its fullness, I hope I'm not communicating that, that uh, superficial idea. I hope that you're not hearing me say, oh, Keith is just saying we all just need to get along at church and that's Christian unity. 
That's not what Jesus prays for. That's not the kind of oneness that we see in John chapter 17. Unity is not just getting along with church. It's not uh, just staying away from causing problems and causing divisions and minding my own business when something, when something comes along. You know, as long as, as, as long as I mind my business and don't make anybody mad, then I'm, I'm living in Christian unity. That kind of a spirit. That's not what this is referring to. This oneness that Jesus prays for, it's so much more. It's so much more weighty. This kind of oneness is a spiritual kind of oneness. It's a spiritual togetherness. It's a spiritual union. It's an all-encompassing relational reality that binds believers together with one mind and one purpose and one mission and a common committed mutual love we hear of this we hear of similar language this oneness language uh, used in, in many different spheres within the Bible. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is one. The Lord ex- exists in himself with this kind of oneness. God is unified in every way, this kind of spiritual, intimate union with himself. God is one. In other instances within the Bible, marriage is described as a man and a woman becoming one flesh. Now, of course, this isn't just intended to be a physical union, a physical description of marriage. Of course, it entails that, but not that only. It's also a spiritual union as well. Man and wife are one and are binded together in holy matrimony by God himself. And in a similar way, Jesus prays for all those who believe in him to live in this kind of spiritual bond, this oneness as described within the Bible that God has created. And I want you to notice with me the pattern of this oneness that Jesus prays for in the second half of verse 21. He says, Even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. We see here the pattern of our oneness. The pattern of our oneness together is the com and get this, it's the complex nature of the relationship that exists between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, which is implied. Have you ever have you ever tried to grasp the complexity of the Trinity? How God is how how one God exists in three persons? I don't even know how to teach that. I, I don't even know how to uh, accurately explain that. I don't think anybody can. I don't think anybody has the full capability of fully understanding the essence of the Godhead, the Trinity, and has the full capability of explaining that. It's complex. But Jesus says that our, our, our oneness is to be a reflection of that kind of oneness that God exists in himself. The oneness that we have together is to be a reflection of the oneness that God exists in himself. 
And when, when I try to wrap my mind around this, I did a lot of thinking about this uh, th- this week, and I'm trying to like wrap my mind around the oneness of God. It amazes me. It, 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 it baffles me. And, and it's by God's design that I have that same reaction when I look at his people. Look at them. Look, look at these people. Look at how they're binded together in such an extraordinary, supernatural way. I can't even understand it. I don't understand it. People don't normally act that way. I can't even explain it. All I can do is just be in awe over it. The oneness of God's people, it's supposed to amaze us because our oneness is to be patterned after the oneness of God himself. But not only amazement for those in the church... That's not even Jesus' main point. Jesus' main point is not to say that every one of us should look at our unity and just be amazed at that. Jesus goes on further in the third half of verse 21. Look with me there. (coughs) So that the world may believe that you sent me. So that the world may believe that you sent me sent me. Our oneness, this is what Jesus prays for, our oneness is intended to be a living testimony to the deity of Jesus Christ. Unbelievers will be able to clearly see that Jesus is God's Son, that Jesus is sent from the Father when they see the oneness within believers. Look at these people. Look at them. I don't understand this. I can't explain this. Look at how they live together. Look at how they love together. Look at how they embrace the the same teachings together and live in unison. Look at how they're committed to one another. Look at how gracious and forgiving they are whenever they are at odds with one another. This must be something special. This must be God created. This must be supernatural. This Jesus that they always talk about, he must be the one that's sent from the Holy God. Our oneness, it's intended to be a living testimony to the deity of Jesus Christ. When those outside of the church body look at us and look at our unity and look at what we're committed to, it's designed by God for them to say, wow, I can't understand it. I can't explain it. But it's something not of this world. It's something that originates with God himself. And it's also intended to make the glorious character of God, the unity that we have, It's also intended to make the glorious character of God shine brightly in the world. And that's what Jesus also prays for in verse 22. Look with me there. Jesus prays and says, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. Now what does that mean? What's the glory that the Father has given to the Son and that the Son has given to the believers? It probably refers to the excellence of God's character. 
The way that God reveals himself, the, the primary attributes of God that are echoed over and over again through Scripture is that God is a compassionate God. God is a God full of grace. God is a God that is patient and long-suffering. God is a God that is loyal and full of steadfast love and faithfulness and justice toward his covenant people. That's the excellence of God, the excellence of God's character. And Jesus reveals that nature, God's nature, God's excellence, God's character to the world. And Jesus is saying here that he's given that excellence. He's given that character to the believers in the world. He's given them the ability to do the same thing that he himself is doing. To reflect that nature. To reflect that excellence and that, gl and, and, and that glory. When you reflect in your life. When you live out a life that's defined by compassion and grace and patience and steadfast covenant love and faithfulness and justice in your life, you're reflecting the glory of the Father, of Almighty God in heaven. And when believers reflect God's excellence, when they reflect His glory, Jesus says the result, the product of that is unity. It's oneness. And when unity is lived and embraced, it leads to a public display of God's excellent character for the world to see. Notice in, verse, in the second part of verse 22, Jesus prays that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me. Brothers and sisters, to be like Jesus, all of us are trying to be like Jesus, hopefully. We're trying to uh, come closer to his heart and mimic his character, mimic his behavior, and to become like him because he himself is God. To be like Jesus, what that means is to be one is to pursue oneness with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And Jesus says that when we live with this oneness together, a oneness that's patterned after the complex nature of the oneness of God himself, what inevitably happens is that we in unison become a complete and a whole image to the world, which reflects the glorious character of God to a world that desperately, desperately needs him. That's how important what we're talking about is. If we want to reach this world for Jesus, it requires that we uphold this kind of oneness, this kind of unity above all else. And not only that, but you also reveal how much love God has welling up in his heart for lost souls. When you live in oneness, not only do you ref reflect God's character, you reflect the magnitude of God's love that he has for sinners when you live in unity. And that's what he prays for in the second part of verse 23. He says, and loved them even as you have loved me. Did you catch that? Let me read that again. Jesus prays. He prays, I pray that they may be perfected in unity so that, in order that, the world may know 
that you loved them as you have loved me. Notice the last part of that verse. The Father's love, what Jesus says to us, the Father's love for the Son, how much the Father loves Jesus Christ, the Father's love for the Son is comparable to His love for the world. Jesus says, just as you have loved me, I want them to see how much the Father loves them. That's amazing. That's amazing. God's love for His unique, holy, sinless, spotless Son, the magnitude of that love that God has for His Son can be compared to His love for those who profaned His holiness, for those who have sinned against Him, for someone like me. And somehow, and in some way, when believers live in complete unity, it broadcasts to the world the magnitude of that love. And that's what Jesus prays for. Unity. It's much, much more than just getting along at church. It's much more than not causing problems, not causing issues. Unity is about reaching the world for Jesus. The goal of unity in the mind of Jesus Christ is so that the world may see the magnitude of God's love that He has for them. We show the lost of this world the magnificent love of the Father when we live in unity. So what can we take away from this message this morning as we close what do we take away from Jesus' prayer? What do we learn about Christian unity and its goal? Our unity is evidence that Jesus was sent from God. You know, sometimes I get overwhelmed at uh, how, many, how many people there are that don't know Jesus. Uh, I want this world to know Christ. I hope you do too. Sometimes it can get overwhelming and you think, how, how Lord, how, how in the world? How in the world are we supposed to reach these people in this kind of a culture and this kind of a world with the good news of Jesus. But Jesus tells us here the key, the key to reaching souls for Jesus is doing exactly what he said to do. It's to be one, to live in this kind of unity, to be the kind of Acts chapter 2 church that we see recorded in Scripture and live that way. Um, just a couple days ago, I don't think you'll mind me sharing this, uh, but... Uh, the Mendozas, when they left, uh, they went to South Carolina uh, the other day, but a group of us helped them leave, um, helped them pack up their boxes and um, their house and, and everything. And, um, and Wes uh, said, said to me, um, again, I don't, think, I don't think he'll care if, if I say this, um, he said something along the lines of, the way you guys have treated us is better than the way that our own families have treated us. And I can see that the Spirit of God moves in all of you. That's the design of Christian unity. That's what Christian unity is supposed to instill within people. And that's what we need to be constantly striving for.
Our unity is evidence that Jesus was sent from God and that what we have here is something that is of non-human origin. It's from the Spirit of God Himself. Number two, our unity reveals the character of God. The lost will see the compassion, the grace, the patience, the steadfast love, and the faithfulness of God when they see us living in oneness. People see who God is when they see us in our striving for this kind of oneness. And then lastly, what we see from this prayer is that our unity exposes the magnitude of God's love for the world. I hope I hope and pray that you hope and pray that the world may understand how much they are loved by Jesus Christ. And it's when you pursue this kind of unity that you take a step forward in showing that to a world that desperately needs God more than anything in this life. If you knew you were about to die, if you knew that your time on earth was coming to an end, what would you pray for? One of the things that Jesus, our Lord, He prayed for, He prayed that we all might be one. And to be like our Lord, we must desire and pray for the same. This morning, if anyone has any need, uh, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.